0: Oh, well, I I lost a bet and the Seahawks lost uh, to the Panthers. Uh, So a couple of things we can learn from this. Number one, you shouldn't gamble um, because it ruins sermons. Uh, Somebody just read a scripture. Nobody remembers what that was now. Um, And... uh, but I'm, I'm encouraged that God draw, draws near uh, to the contrite and heart and the lowly. So uh, whatever, I don't know what happened. Uh, anyway, so I got to wear this stupid thing tonight. Um, uh, but go Hawks. I'm glad you're here. My name's Jason. Uh, I'm from Seattle and I'm a Seahawks fan and we lost. So that's why I'm doing this. Rob Wolf um, is the one who's a Panthers fan and he's not even here tonight. Uh, so I don't know what that means. Anyway, um, if you're new, I'm glad you're here. I'm sorry for all this. Um, and if you're not new, I'm still sorry for all this. Um, so uh, anyway, my name is Jason. I'm the director of the house. And uh, I'm excited to preach to you tonight. Just not excited to preach in this. Um, anyway. Uh, okay, so uh, we're in the second week. Uh, I just have to go. I can't, I can't focus on this any longer. Sorry if it's distracting. Um, we'll see. We're going to read a passage of scripture that says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, however. So I have to wear this tonight. Um, Okay, so we're in the second week of a new sermon series um, on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, If you don't know what that is, that's okay. Uh, It's um, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, which is the first book in the New Testament um, of the Bible. And in chapters five through seven, Matthew records for us a continuous um, uh, teaching of Jesus. Um, that that Christians call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus withdrew up to a mountain uh, when he noticed these crowds following him um, as he was healing and and casting out demons um, and talking about his kingdom. And when he turned and saw the disciples, all these people following him, he went up a mountain, sat down, opened his mouth and began to teach them. And he's teaching them about what the kingdom of God is like. If you're reading Matthew and you, and you don't sort of start in other places in the Bible, um, and it's your first introduction to the gospel to Jesus, you, you hear him talk about the Sermon on the Mount, but you're not sure, or sorry, you hear him talk about the kingdom of God, but you're not exactly sure what that means. And so when he opens his mouth and begins to teach about this kingdom as a reader, you're thinking, I wanna know what you're talking about. I've seen your, your victories over Satan, the way, the way John the Baptist spoke about you baptizing with fire, the names that these people following you call you, the king, the promised one of Israel, the one who will baptize us with fire, you're doing miracles of healing and casting out demons and people are coming to hear you teach like crazy. And now he's going to stop the, the, the ministry in action outside of his words for just a minute to teach on what he's doing and what this kingdom that he's, he's talking about is like. And so we listen up. And and last week, what we found uh, in the sermon is that as he begins to teach this, the first thing that he does is the king of this kingdom says that it is about blessing. The king of the kingdom begins to start his teaching on the the kingdom of God by saying, is a kingdom of blessing, which in and of itself, I think if we're listening and we're honest, is a bit of a surprise. That he blesses before he commands Anything. He decides to bless his people before he asks them to do anything. And for most of us, I don't, maybe you've grown up in the church, maybe you've heard about um, uh, that, that, that you're saved by grace through faith or something like this a lot. But most of us live lives that we flip that around, where I actually need to, to obey the commands. I need to clean my room in order to get to go outside. I need to do this work in order to to be considered this kind of student. I don't walk in the door already blessed. I obey. And then, then I get blessing. And so I would expect when Jesus begins to talk about his kingdom that he would say, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, here are all the things you must do first. But he doesn't start with that. He starts by saying, these are the people who are blessed. And in his saying that, he's actually introducing new things in that very moment. This is the king. So what he says is blessed is, whether it was or not before. And that's surprising, but it's more surprising if we've listened well because the people that he says are blessed are really surprising for us. You can listen to the, the sermon online if you want to go into it more, but, but you can read it at the beginning of Matthew as well. But he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who among us feels that when we are poor in spirit, that the kingdom of heaven is ours? Or that the meek among us, the lowly among us, are going to inherit the earth. Don't we think it's the strong? I mean, all of us who've grown up in any kind of public education know the story. The theories of science right now would lead us to believe that the, the strong, genetically, the strong, biologically, will in fact inherit the earth. But Jesus says it's the meek. It's surprising. How does this happen? What does all of this mean? We don't know yet. He just started preaching but he he blesses before he commands and he he blesses in such a way as to say that there isn't a single person that is too far from his reach. There is no one that can outrun his blessing or is too far from his ability to bless or bring in to his kingdom and see flourish in his kingdom. And I said blessing comes before command, but he does command. And tonight's passage is going to end with a pretty big one. I want to put that up now. It's from Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a command of Jesus Christ. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, it's gonna be hard as we go through this sermon tonight, I think, to remember that blessing comes first. Because if we're listening, we're going to feel like there's no way I'm gonna get blessed because I can't do what Jesus says that we need to do. Stick with me. But I want to tell you where he's going. He's going here. Be perfect. This is from the mouth of Jesus. I don't know what you think Jesus commands of everyone who follows him. What do you think? When you think about somebody who says, I became a Christian or I am a Christian, what do you think they've signed up for? Somebody who says, Jesus, I want to follow you, what do you think he says to them? If you are a Christian, what do you think he says to you? What is his command on your life? Here's one of them, be perfect. The whole gospel of Matthew, in fact, um, ends uh, with Jesus saying, amongst other things, his disciples ought to teach people to obey everything he commands. Assuming they're already obeying all of his commands, like be perfect. Now I'm supposed to go out and teach all of you to be perfect. These are the kinds of things Jesus asks. Be perfect. We need to obey this and teach others to obey this. How in the heck do we understand this? And what in the heck do we do with it? It's my suspicion as I begin to to, to walk through the text in just a minute, that there are some of us in this room that already think we're not too far off. There are some of us in this room that, that, that maybe you don't use the word perfect because you're really judgmental, but you think you're so much better than everybody else around you. And I hope the words of our Lord tonight humble you. I do. And I hope they bring you low to on your knees to the only place where we can see him clearly. And I hope that the call to utter perfection, the way Jesus defines it, Cast a light on all the ways that you and I have never measured up to our own standards, let alone His. And if we, those of us who are really prideful in this room, hear that correctly and are humbled, and then we can join everybody else in this room that hears a command like be perfect and already knows that there is just no way we are ever going to do that, immediately upon hearing it, we know it's utterly impossible. I must do something else with his words. I must make them funny. I must twist them. I must do do something, make them do gymnastics somehow because he can't possibly mean be perfect. I know it says be perfect. That's not what he means though because for most of us in this room, we think that's utterly impossible to do that. For all of us here, my hope is that we see that the Christ draws near to us and that we actually hear in his commands a promise of what he can do. And so I wanna put a kind of a picture in our minds of something that's a little silly. It means a lot to me though. Would you put that picture up on my daughter, Daniel? <laughs> this is my daughter Blythe from a couple years ago. Leave it up for just a second. She is um, absolutely beautiful. I mean, she's stunning. And most, most days, uh, you know, I'm sort of convicted by the help or something where I need to say like, you was kind, you was smart. You know, I need to like, like I need to talk to her about other things in her beauty because she's really, really beautiful. And, and she always wears dresses. And like, she went to see my mom today. My mom sells cosmetics. And so I saw her and she's si- five, four, she'll be five in a week. Golly, uh, I know she's four. Uh, I also knew the Seahawks were gonna win, but whatever. Uh, but she's four and, uh, and she visited my mom today and my mom had like lipstick on her and, and eyeshadow And I was like, no, 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 no. Uh, and, uh, but she's, she's really, really stunning. But I, uh, we, this is the first time we brought her to a lookouts game here in town. And this was the entire game before we left in the sixth inning, the entire game. I mean, she's coated in sweat and not because it was so hot, but because she had screamed so much. And we, like, moved to, like, the very back of the stadium because she's doing this. And at one point, it, it sort of I have these moments sometimes where I don't know what else to do because I struggle with anger. We're gonna get to that tonight. I struggle with anger. And, and, and what I want to do is uh, slap her or do, say something really mean to her or tell her to just stop which is never something any guy should say to a woman. Uh, it doesn't seem to work. Um, and, uh, and so what I did instead is I just took a picture of her and posted it on Instagram, because it was like the only thing I could think to do. And so I just said, Instagramming my perfect life. And, and for everybody else, it might have been kind of cute, but for me and my wife, Anna, it was really hard. It was really hard. It was like, Mike, just, just stop. Like, this isn't that terrible. Like, you have all these things to eat and we're with our family and it's a baseball game and she is losing her mind the entire time for six innings straight. Okay, crazy thing. The reason I'm putting this picture up is because when I began thinking of Jesus' call to be perfect and I thought, what is the condition of our lives though? Are any of us perfect? I kid you not, the first image that came to my mind, I hadn't looked at this recently, the first image that came to my mind is that all of us are spiritual conditions. How good we really are. I think if we could see each other very clearly, that we'd look a lot like this. That Every single one of us in this room is a wreck. That we look like this, throwing tantrums, desperate, not helpful to anybody around us so often, just wanting our way, causing a sweat, because we cannot live the life that we think we ought to live or want to live and I think that this, there's all sorts of metaphors you can use. You know, I remember once sitting in a sermon where somebody said, I wish sometimes that, that, when, that, when, uh, that when we walked into the room and saw each other, that, that we would display our spiritual brokenness like we do our physical brokenness. So when somebody has a broken leg and they have a cast on or a splint or a brace or they walk on crutches, this pastor was saying, I wish that I could see you walk on crutches sometimes spiritually when you're that broken. So we could just be honest with each other. But we spend so much time pretending and so much time thinking, maybe we think everybody else is perfect, I don't know. One of my heroes, um, this great hero of World War II named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, made this comment in a little book written to college students, actually, called Life Together. He said, why is it that in a Christian community, when a real sinner stands up, everybody's aghast? Shouldn't this be the safest community? To express our sins as we hear Jesus talk about perfection tonight I hope that one of the things that comes out of this is an ability for all of us to breathe just for a second and say he knows he knows and he's put our spiritual condition on display before all the world because if what Jesus says about me is true about you I also know how how short you fall and you too, even though I stand up here and I'm preaching from the word, you should know how short I fall. We don't need to pretend. We all look like that. We're gonna walk through um, the, the, sort of this next section in this sermon of Jesus. And as we walk through it, I want you to pay attention to a couple of things. I want you to pay attention to whether or not you know his voice. When you think about Jesus, when you think about the things he says, the things he commands, the way you talk about him, does he sound like this? Do you know him? What is he like? What kinds of things does he say? And I want you to remind yourself over and over again as we read the passage of Scripture and I talk about some of these sections that this is Jesus speaking. He spoke like this, he speaks like this still. Let's pray, and we're gonna go through the passage, right? In Matthew chapter five. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, as we open up your word, as I talk about your Son teaching, I'm thankful for the men and women who have um, taken such great care to ensure that the words we read today are the very words that proceeded from the mouth of your Son 2,000 years ago. I'm thankful that we do not have to guess at what he said. I'm thankful that we don't have to guess at how to interpret the law because he did it for us. I'm thankful that you begin teaching us about your kingdom by blessing and that your commands carry with them a promise. I ask that you would send your spirit to allow each person in this room to be honest with themselves. Help us for a moment to see clearly and I pray that you would, it would invite us all to follow you in Jesus name I pray amen alright so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 uh, verses 17 through 48 it's a lot of a lot of text and, uh, and I'm going to talk about it as we go through so it's probably going to be helpful for you we'll have it on the screen but you may actually want to open it up on your phone or pull out a Bible in front of you we're looking at the NIV version the new international version um, uh, let's go ahead and throw that up Matthew chapter 5 Verse 17. Um, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is Jesus. First of all, the law and the prophets. What just really quickly, when you come across these two things strung together in the New Testament, if you read the Bible, which I recommend, um, the law and the prophets, essentially what we can, we can hear in that or understand in that is, is the summary of the Israelite scriptures, or what Christians would call the Old Testament what Jews today would call the Hebrew Bible. It's, it's sort of, when we see the law and the prophets, it sort of sufficiently says all of what Israel believed were the holy scriptures and the holy accounts, the set apart accounts of what God has done in history and spoken in history through his people, Israel. And so Jesus comes on the scene here in this sermon and he says, do not think that I have come to abolish all of the things that I have said before and all of the things that you have believed already about me. In the law, I have not come to abolish all that. Maybe some of you think that Jesus has come for that. Maybe some of you think that when Jesus came, the law doesn't matter anymore. These are his words. And he says this, of course, because there might be an assumption from some folks as they watch Jesus walk around and seem to have some freedom that they never knew before. Does he care about the law like we do? Is he doing away with the law? And he says, no, 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 don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Maybe you think that Jesus did away with the law. Maybe you think it's not relevant anymore and the apostle Paul would join in and say, by no means. By no means, he came to fulfill them. And fulfill in this case doesn't, actually in every case, I think in Matthew, it doesn't mean, of course it doesn't mean end or kill off. It doesn't mean lesson. It means to fill up. Interestingly, the root word for fulfill is the same root word used for resurrection, which I think is pretty helpful here. It might be helpful for us to think that this is what Jesus is hinting at. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to resurrect the law from the dead. He came to make it stand up straight and life again in our lives, that it might not be something that brings about death, but something that brings about life. Jesus came to fulfill the law. But what does he mean? What does he mean by that? We'll keep going. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, just if you've never, we are anemic in this. I've got a couple of asides here. I just need to throw this out because I can't help myself. Uh, If you've never heard in any church sermon teachings on the new heavens and the new earth, uh, go find them. The New Testament is littered with this kind of teaching. for some reason, in the 20th century church and 21st century church, we're anemic for this kind of teaching. Do you know that the heavens as they are today will pass away? And that a new heaven and new earth is coming. The New Testament's littered with this. But Anyway, go check it out. Okay, anyway. Uh, for truly, maybe we'll talk about that some other time. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, which also begs the question of what is being accomplished. You should ask that question too. Verse 19, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knows, and it's a good thing, all of us have desires to be great in some way, and he's appealing to that. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or commonly called the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, if you've never heard, are the religious teachers these, these set-apart folks who were separated at one point, it might have been negative, later it seemed like it might, they might have assumed it's positive that they're different than everybody else, but they sort of did everything right. They were the ones who, uh, Jesus tells stories, we'll get into some of this later in a couple weeks, but where they would, um, they would tithe, they would drop money in pots and make the, make the money clang loudly so everybody knew that they were the ones tithing. And they would fast uh, twice a week. They'd fast more than what, what, what was required by any sort of law, when they fasted, they would actually, like, uh, make themselves disfigured to show off the fact that they were fasting. They, Jesus would talk about how they would go out into their gardens and tithe one-tenth of every leaf on every herb plant in their gardens. They did everything right externally in such a way that nobody could measure up. We all know people like this. Unfortunately, to my, to my shame, I am that person to some folks. We all know people like this. And the scribes, the, 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 the Pharisees and in, and in this translation, he calls them, uh, what does he call them? We go back. Uh, and the, the teachers of the law, which are the scribes. These are the people, not the people that are, um, the, the religious folks doing everything right, but the teachers of the law or the scribes are the people who could tell you every single argument for and against. They knew the letter of the law. They were the ones who studied it intensely. And unfortunately, I've been that person too. And for those of us in this room that do everything right externally, especially compared to our roommates or our siblings or our parents, or those of us who can say everything right and argue everything right, Jesus says that's not enough because you see your righteousness has to surpass that to enter the kingdom of heaven. But, but don't think that everybody else has got a free ticket because none of us in this room are ever gonna be like you. <laughs> none of us are righteous enough seemingly To get in so if you can't get in who the hell can and you see sort of how Jesus at this part of the sermon begins to level some pretty heavy stuff at the audience at the crowd the people not just random folks people who've said I want to follow you Jesus and he says unless your righteousness surpasses that of the most righteous person you know and unless your righteousness surpasses that of the person that you think knows the most about righteousness you will never get into the kingdom of heaven which I think begs one question, we all might word it different, but it sounds something like this. Then how can I get in? If their righteousness isn't good enough and, it's, and I have to surpass that, how how do I get in? But Here's what I really want us to notice before we go to the rest of this. So Jesus starts this section... By talking about, let's see, he said, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That He has come to fulfill them, but then, then he moves. He moves in this passage from his fulfillment of the law to our righteousness. At the end of this section, verse 20, 19 and 20, uh, here, I, I tell you that unless your righteousness He's somehow tying together his fulfillment and our righteousness. And our righteousness must be so much greater than anything we've ever seen or tasted or touched before for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's about to begin to explain what this might look like. What is the kind of righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that he is talking about? What does that look like? And Jesus doesn't leave vague sort of statements like that and let us sort of go off in small groups and deliberate. He's actually going to go through things that we all, his crowd would have. They were all Jews at the time who were people of the book, they were called. People who studied the, 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 the law and the prophets from the time of their youth. That They knew what the law said and Jesus is going to go through examples of the law. And show what righteousness surpassing the scribes and the Pharisees look like. What righteousness surpassing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law look like. So let's look at verse 21, and we'll begin to go through some examples. And I I just don't have time. We don't have time tonight to go through each example a lot. So I'm going to pick a couple. We're going to read them all. But most, I've actually heard teaching on the Sermon on the Mount a lot, and almost all of it has stopped and done week after week in this section. But I want us to hear the broad stroke of Matthew chapter 5 tonight. So I'm gonna stop for a little bit to illustrate Jesus' point. I'm just, I'm only gonna stir the pot with some of these individual ideas though, okay? So first, Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So far, so good. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which just means idiot. Or fool. So I'm just going to use our our language there for a second. And again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, you idiot, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So far in this room, if I were to say, do not murder, most of you, maybe all of you, I don't know, uh, would be able to say, check, I'm good. My righteousness is that of the Pharisees in the category of do not murder for most of us, maybe all of us. But then Jesus says, I tell you, if you're angry with a brother or sister, you've committed murder. How many of us can check that box? You're angry and you begin to say in your heart, you idiot, about your roommate, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your parents. How many of us can check that box? say I've done it. Notice how Jesus took something external, murder, and went inward with anger and in his fulfilled right side up teaching of the law, he lets us know that the law not to murder was as much about what's going on inside of you as outside of you. The meaning here is not so much, by the way, this is really, really important, when Jesus says, you, when you're angry at your brother and sister, it was abundantly clear in the original language. It's just, we have to translate things in English to, to try to capture it well. It doesn't mean that there's a moment of anger that you have. It means dwelling on that anger, nursing that anger. I'm angry with you, and now I'm going to meditate on it, and I'm gonna brew on it, and I'm going to think about how angry I am at you and let that build. And I'm going to focus on that as the the nature of our relationship for the time being. And of course, in that place, it becomes so much easier for me to say, you idiot. That's what he means. He's not talking about a moment where we're stirred up in anger for a second, but what do we do when that happens? What do the people of God's kingdom do when that happens? Jesus says if they meditate and stir up and nurse that anger, it's, it's, it's murder in your heart. And you are answerable to judgment. And saying somebody is an idiot in that place makes you liable for the fires of hell, Jesus says. He's not pulling punches. Perhaps you think you haven't murdered, but Jesus is here to say that every one of us in this room has committed murder in our hearts and we're liable to judgment for that. Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Verse 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar... Therefore, right, which, which, which implies that what Jesus just said, if we got it, would move naturally into this. If you're, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you could think if I'm, if I'm um, offering my prayers to God, if I'm coming to confess my sins to God, if I'm doing, if I'm responding to him in some religious fashion, he would say, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift right there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. He doesn't say, notice, if you've done something wrong. He didn't even say that. Look at the verse. He says, if someone has something against you, and think about the world of difference there. How many of us, this is so convicting for me, it comes back to me all the time, all the time, that I wait to initiate reconciliation until I figure out who's at fault. Jesus says, no, 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 no. If someone has something against you, Jason, regardless of who's at fault. Leave your gift. Don't sit here and spend time doing your religious duties and doing all the things you think you're supposed to do that are right. Get off your butt and go move in reconciliation toward that person. That's what I've already commanded you. You can stay on your knees and pray. God, what do you want me to do? He's already told you. Go be reconciled with them. Go. He's already answered your prayers. Go be reconciled with them if they have something against you. He is commanding you to initiate reconciliation. And now, if we disobey Jesus' command, we are violating his law. And who among us has kept that? What Pharisee in this room has never violated that? I want to remind you of something that you've probably already forgotten. This whole sermon begins with blessing. Jesus begins talking about his commands. And I know because of the nature of our hearts and the, and the lies that we believe that we quickly forget that. Jesus says in verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court and do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Do not be angry. Do not have contempt. Reconcile quickly. Reconcile quickly. If we did those things, do you think we'd ever murder anybody? But, but you see, I could, really, if I, if I didn't harbor my anger towards somebody, if I reconciled quickly and initiated that, would I ever murder anybody? But, but of course, if I just say don't murder externally, doesn't that leave open the fact that I could harbor so much bitterness in my heart towards you? and be throwing daggers at you all day and say, yo, 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 I never murdered anybody. Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law, not abolish it. If I do not harbor anger, if I initiate reconciliation and I do it quickly, am I abolishing the law of murder? Am I doing away with the law of murder? No. Has Jesus thrown out the law? No. We find him keeping the external demands and more. I want you to imagine something if you can. Really, try to imagine this. What if followers of Jesus never meditated on their anger toward their brothers and sisters? What if you never thought of Christians as an angry folk, ever? What if they always move toward others in reconciliation quickly? Is that the kind of kingdom that you'd wanna be a part of? Verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Similar to anger, the same basic idea is presented here with lust, that looking at someone is not what's condemned. Looking at someone is not what's condemned. It's looking with the intent to possess something that isn't yours. It's the second or third look or the prolonged stare like anger that Jesus is talking about is the nursing of that anger and stirring it up and meditating on it. Here, the adultery that we can do with our heart is desiring something and then meditating on that and stirring that up and imagining it and and trying to see it as something that belongs to us that we get to do what we want with. And of course, Jesus is primarily here talking about sexuality, particularly marriage too somebody's husband or wife. 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Again, these are Jesus's words. Personal Savior Jesus, best friend Jesus. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. First, Jesus speaks commit to commands which protect life and now he speaks to commands that protect marriage and he knows that in order to do this we must make really really hard decisions gouge out your eye cut off your hand one commentator said that no gradual course of action is recommended i think i'll get around to this someday i really should stop doing that sort of thing that's not what jesus is recommending He's recommending decisive, quick action that this will not be an easy thing for you, people of my kingdom, to not commit adultery. It will not be easy for you for all sorts of reasons I can't get into tonight, okay? But quick decisions, hard decisions must be made. You may think that you have not committed adultery, Pharisee, but I tell you that if you've looked at another person lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery, He's not done with marriage yet. Verse 31, he says, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. This is something that they believed already. But I tell you, I haven't even mentioned this yet. How crazy is it that Jesus says this? The scriptures say, but I say this. Can you imagine for just a second how bold that is? I, I know what the Bible says, you guys, but let me tell you a little something. The boldness and the authority with which he wields the law is crazy. He legitimately speaks as if his words carry weight or more weight than anything they had heard before. But didn't they hear things directly from the mouth of God? You've heard it said, Scripture, but I say... Verse 32, but I tell you, but I say that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery for the sake of time and because this is a specially painful and and careful passage to exposit. I just wanna say here that Jesus is making divorce all the more difficult and faithfulness to a spouse all the more important. Brothers and sisters, he lifts up marriage more than you'd ever possibly imagine. And even the crudest statistics in our world today would tell all of us how little we care for Jesus' teaching here. Pharisees and teachers of the law, your righteousness must surpass that to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 33, again, you've heard it said. You've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven for it's God's throne or by earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king and do not swear by your head for you cannot even make one hair white or black that's before hair dies all you need to say is simply yes or no anything beyond this anything beyond yes or no comes from the evil one if we understood the law perfectly and obeyed it If our righteousness surpassed that of the Pharisees, I would never say, no, I really mean it this time. I never need to. I'd never need to say, can I be honest with you just for a second? Because I haven't been so far. I'd never need to say, really, really, really. I'd never need to say, I promise. I'd also never say, I guarantee that I will because I would know my place and I would know that I can't guarantee anything. I might die this very evening, so who am I to guarantee anything for tomorrow? All I can tell you is yes or no. That's all I can do. What if the people of God, the people of his kingdom always spoke like that? Never deceptively, always honestly. Never offered more than they could promise. Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Verse 38, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue, these are the commands of Jesus to you today still, to me today still. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is a really, really common, uh, this begins with a really common law that existed all over the ancient Near East. Some of you might know the the Latin phrase, lex talionis, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And when it was originally given to the people of Israel by Moses, what a great thing was given. Because at that time, it was known, it was known that the smallest infraction against somebody might bring about death in my family. I might accidentally run over Jonathan's goat And he might decide, because that was his prized goat, that he's gonna off one of my kids. And so so great grace and justice was given by saying, no, 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 no. Eye for an eye, man. Not more than what they did, exactly what they did. That's the parameter, that's the boundary, that's the external boundary of this thing. We might actually see in all of what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter five, that almost all of the you've heard it said stuff is the very outer rim. And, and we, like, I, I painted this image here one time. Uh, I forget how long ago it was though, so maybe none of you are here when I did. M- I have a, a dog that is a, um, that's a part husky. And when I used to have a yard that was fenced in, now I don't and I just get sued by my neighbor and so I give her my coat too. Uh, but uh, it really did, that kind of felt like that happened recently. Uh, I just had to pay her a lot of money. Um, anyway, but I used to have a fenced in yard and my dog, uh, he's a husky, likes to run. Um, what do you imagine he, he did in my backyard? My backyard was a big rectangle. Could you know where the footpath was for my dog? It's all on the outside of it. The middle of my yard was pristine grass. The outside of my yard was this like muddy path, and he just kept wandering the outside of it. This is, of course, what we do all the time with the law. At some point this semester, maybe near the end, we might talk about things like sexual boundaries or something. And this happened with every single time I was in a dating relationship. What's the boundary sexually? Well, that's, that's how far we're going. <laughs> like, I'm going right up to the edge of that. And we're going to run some laps right there on the fence, you know? And, and this is what we do with the law. So Jesus says, don't murder. And we go, well, I haven't murdered. And he's like, what about all this in the middle? Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was sort of that boundary thing that restricted what we could do. Really common in the ancient Near East. But Jesus comes in and says, actually, I want my disciples never to repay evil for evil. This doesn't mean lay down and submit to abuse. That's not what it means. It also doesn't mean run away. It actually means to confront the person, but you confront them with something different than they confronted you with. Paul would later have something to say about this where he would say, you overcome evil with good. You overcome evil with good. Do not repay evil for evil. But how hard is that? And how much do we do it? Don't many of us, I, could even, I never thought, I didn't think about this in my prep for tonight, but I even think about that dwelling and meditating and nursing a thought again that when somebody does something evil to me, one of the temptations is to stew on how I can get them back or how justice can be served in my mind. And Jesus would say, no, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Don't repay evil for evil. 43, You've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, of course, the scriptures, you may not know this, have never said hate your enemy. It did say love your neighbors. It didn't say hate your enemy. But at the time in the first century, one of the com- it was a very common thing amongst many Jews, not all of them, was accepted that we love our friends and we hate our enemies. And there was, there was reasons why that was believed, but, but I just want to clear that up that the Bible doesn't actually say hate your enemy anywhere, except for here, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, and he says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Friends, gut check. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. How does that mean? Why does he say that we would be children of our Father in heaven? Because he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous. And rain's a good thing in this context. Without rain, crops don't grow. The whole economies die. That God causes the sun and the rain, the good things of this world to rise on the evil and the good alike. love your enemies. Is not that what God does to us? Loves us. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? I didn't need to go into that. Are not even, essentially, everybody does that. Everybody loves everybody who loves them with rare exceptions. But who loves those who persecute them, who hate them, who are their enemies? And if you greet only your own people in a place like this, a church in the hub downstairs on campus, at family gatherings, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than any others? Don't even pagans do that? Jesus would have us love our enemies. Your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. Okay, as we go through, so Jesus had this broad statement that your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty broad. What do you mean, Jesus? Well, let me give you examples, he says. In anger, in lust, in divorce, And oaths, in retaliation, in enemies, and who we love, and all these things. What does it look like for your righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees? Look, you guys, if you're looking for like what the bell curve is or whatever, he summarizes the whole thing here at the end. He sort of encapsulates this section first by saying your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees, and he ends by saying you must therefore be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And to be sure. It is exactly as it sounds. There's no trick of words here. There's no Greek word or study or no clever turn of phrase that gets us out of this. Be perfect, he says. And in case you wonder what he means by that, he says, like God. This is what I mean. Be perfect. Okay, but like, be perfect like what? Like God. So, I mean, that's like a, I can't, it's not a tall enough order, you know? It's like at the top. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But here's the thing. He would not have commanded such a thing if it wasn't possible. He's not in the business of doing that. He would not have commanded this thing if it wasn't possible. To me, I think there's a certain part of me that that only makes it strike harder. (laughs) Because it seems to me that it might be more bearable for a moment, just for a moment. I don't think this is totally true. But for just a moment, it seems like it'd be more bearable if I could turn to Jesus and I could say, Jesus, move, move on to someone else for whom this is possible. You and I already know it's not possible with me. And then I think I read this command and I let it wash just over my back and onto somebody else because I know that that's not for me, that I'm looking through the Bible for some other kind of command that I can actually do on my own strength. Of course, the God-man, though, looks at me. Jesus looks at me in response to my statement and he says, for me, Jason, for you... Who says, it's not possible for me? He says, for me, all things are possible. Be perfect. And in his exposition of those laws, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, but I tell you, in his exposition of all those things, the honest among us right here must admit that it's impossible to fulfill those things. So what do we do? And here it is. The command to be perfect And for us to see it as it is, not to dumb it down or twist it and make it something more manageable apart from Christ, the command to be perfect should drive us to our knees. It should drive us to our knees, asking him for help. And you know what I'm gonna feel there on my knees? I'm going to feel very, very poor in spirit. But do you remember how he began his sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of God. And what we'll find there on our knees is that his promises are not empty, that he offers the very resources and help that we need to live into his commands. One of the things that's crazy about Jesus's commands is they're all self-fulfilling. Like in the very commanding of the thing, he produces the thing. This is what happens when God speaks action happens he's not a god of empty talk he's a god of power that when he speaks universes are made when he speaks dead things come to life when he commands it drives us to blessing and when he blesses it sends us out to live out his commands in the very command he drives us to the one who can fulfill them and he will see that in the end his people are in fact perfect that they're the ones who never harbor anger at others, who move toward others with reconciliation quickly, who never intend to take from another what isn't theirs to take, who mean every word that they say, who never repay evil for evil, but trust God's judgment, who love even their enemies with the whole of their lives. As we get close to this window and look out on the kingdom of God, these are the kinds of things that he wants to see in his kingdom, that he will see in his kingdom. When he says the righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, this is what he's talking about. He blesses and he commands. His commands lead to blessing and his blessings enable us to live out his commands. Those of us who think we're just fine without Jesus and we're living, or we're living some kind of abundant life apart from his commands, we need to be reminded that the good life, the robust, full life that God intends is impossible to live without his help. And a quick look at Matthew chapter five, verses 17 through 48 will tell us that we have not yet, not for a single day, gotten it right. None of us in this room. I know that's true for every single one of you. No matter what kind of face you put on when you come in here or what you show on social media. And if Jesus' words are more true than the ones I speak to you in passing and the ones I put on social media, which they are, then you should know it's true about me. You should know that his words are more true than mine. What he says is true about me as well. And all of us who know that we cannot do this, for all of us who know that, he reminds us that he has already gone before us and that he offers us his spirit even now, promising that what he has begun, he will bring to completion. This is it's a crazy idea because of the way we normally think about commands. Some of us have assumed or been taught that when Jesus came, the law was gone. But that's not what happened Big big words here I can't get into, but you can go research it, because 2,000 years of church history have, have a gold mines of information in this. Jesus took care of justification in His righteousness. His commands for us are all about our sanctification. His commands for us are all about our right living in Christ now. Set upon the world living like him. And he commands it still for us today, friends. Be perfect at school with your roommates, with your family, with your finances, with your thoughts, with your hobbies, with the things you meditate on, with your desires, with things you talk about with that one person. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. This is a command, yes, but because it's Jesus who commands it, it's also a promise. That one day, we will stand beside each other, wed to Christ, our King, the great King, the high King of all creation. We will stand beside each other and before him, perfect as he is perfect. This is a picture of the kingdom. As we draw close to the window, looking out upon it, and we see what kind of life he is talking about. Remember, he is saying this to everybody who would say, I wanna follow you, Jesus. And as he gives you this picture My prayer is that each of us in this place would take the freedom that we have been given and by God's grace, you have all been given this freedom to say no, I want another kind of life or to say yes and amen, come Lord Jesus. It is possible, it is possible though you are not yet perfect that you one day will be in Christ. And what kind of beauty would it be if that kind of perfection the kind he just illustrated for us with friends. Every enemy would love it if we were perfect like that. Every person who has anything against us would be moved toward in reconciliation. We would never repay evil for evil. I would never want something that is rightfully yours. I would just praise God that you have it and thank him for what I have. Jealousy gone. Meditating on anger. You never have to wonder what I'm stewing on with you. It would always be love. One day, by God's grace, if you, if you follow him, if you find yourself driven to your knees in poverty of spirit, meek, with a desire for your pure heart, you will find that he blesses everybody in that place. And he is good on his promises. Let's pray. Father, may your word not return empty tonight. May your spirit be alive and moving, but I know that we must respond. You have made us a people that you will not coerce and you will not deceive and you will not manipulate and you will not hard sell in any kind of way. You will simply offer yourself to us and ask that we choose you. I pray that as as we listen to the words of your son uh, talk about the life that you have before us, the kingdom of God, that our hearts would be stirred, that we would desire it. And that as we hear your commands, that we would find ourselves on our knees saying, Jesus, how can we possibly do this? And you would say, ah, I'm here to offer help. May each of us know that help. May we who are in the church, which your apostle Paul said is the fullness of you who fills all in all, may we actually come to each other and be the help that you are offering as well. When we gather together and sing praises to you and learn from your word and live life together, may we find the help of your spirit that you promise. For every single person in this room that wants the kind of perfection that you offer, I pray that you would be good on your promise and bring it to completion and that hope would rise in this place in people's minds and hearts and that we would hear because your commands light up this room with clarity and help all of us know that this is true of all of us so it's not a singular accusation or anything, it's a pure statement of truth that we all fall short of your glory alone. Help us to come to the one who offers us help you and help us to find it. And may your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. Would you hear our praises now and be honored and glorified by them? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.